Before we start, just a heads up. This episode mentions suicide and childhood abuse. So, as you can imagine, people hated Ben's... So, uh, Stumbles, just a chill, chill, okay? I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 31, Love, Death, and Benzodope. I've always thought of Vancouver like an early warning system for the drug war. What happens here will find you eventually. China White, fentanyl, the drug user movement. It doesn't take long before stuff that happens here spreads out to other places around the world. If you live in Vancouver and you're in the life, you already know this. But we're in a whole new stage of the overdose crisis. The new era started all of a sudden for me. I remember the day clearly. It was July 2nd, 2019. I was at the Vancouver area network of drug users holding a listening party for Crackdown. My friend, Martin Stewart, was there too. I think I was working. I, th- I think I was working reception, which is signing people into the IR. That's the injection room. You write down their, their, hand, their handle. Their, nick, their nickname, yeah. uh, their gender, what type of drug they're using, so we can, we can know how to help them if something yeah. goes wrong in the back. And um, I was on my break, yeah, and yeah. Normally, normally getting high on my break is just a typical thing. Martin was at work, so he wasn't looking to get super high just to maintain, keep on an even keel. So he did half a 10 paper a down. Down is, well, who the fuck knows anymore? But it's the word we used to use for heroin around here. But now down describes that grab bag of shit that's replaced heroin, fentanyl and other stuff. But you're never exactly sure what's in there. Laura? After a decade of injecting, Martin's veins had taken refuge beneath the surface of his skin. And so he needed help hitting his jugular. On that day, July 2nd, 2019, Martin's fiance and Crackdown editorial board member Laura Shaver was around, working in her office upstairs at Van Du. And so she came down to the injection room and gave Martin a hand. She has to help me. It's in my neck. So I lay down. And when that happens, when the rig's out of my neck, I stand up, right? I don't fuck around. I get up off the ground. I go about my business. Well, she pulled the rig out and said, OK, Martin. And I didn't move. And that's so she knew instantly. Martin was sprawled out on the injection room's yellow checkerboard floor, and he was showing all the classic signs of overdose. Laura jostled him, then shouted to try and wake him up. But that didn't work. She knew right away that unless he got immediate help, Martin would die. What do you remember from that day in 2019? desperation and fear like I have never felt in my life and he was lying there and he was in a medical fucking um, like a medical induced state of like just it scared me this was Martin's first overdose and it was the first time that Laura had ever seen him like this she felt an intense wave of protectiveness There were other people around who could help Martin, but Laura 
wanted to do as much as possible herself. She started by giving Martin a pain stimuli. A classic technique is to rub your knuckles on a person's sternum. But Laura had a different strategy. I would just push on Martin's stomach by by his belly button in, and there's two scars. That there, he's got three scars from an operation, but I do it purposely because I know it's going to cause him pain. But Martin didn't react, and so Laura and the others moved on to naloxone. I have given naloxone to a lot of people, like I don't know, maybe even fifty people. I it was the first time that I couldn't reverse. It was the first time I couldn't reverse an overdose. When did you figure out that it wasn't a regular overdose? When when Laura told me that Narcan didn't work. As much Narcan as they put into me right. at Vandu. And That's right. They put shit tons shit into you. Shit Like people tons. at Vandu put a bunch and then the ambulance guys put in a bunch. Do you want me to tell you what I remember from it? Of course. Well, the ambulance guys said to Laura, just just come, let, let, us, let us get him in there and then you, you guys come along. So me and Laura jumped in a cab and we went to the hospital and we find you, man. Wow. In 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 this bed, and they've taken all your clothes, and they like, sorry man, but they put a diaper on you. Wow. And they had you, uh, like in restraints, you know, and you were like, um, you were like writhing to get the fuck out of there, and like just messing around like this, you know, just trying to squirm out. Right. Holy shit. And like, God. dude, I was no fucking. It, I was. I was really worried for you, right? You were like, uh, not exactly conscious, but you were saying things, but it wasn't, it didn't make sense. It was just like garbage, you Girl, know what I mean? Yeah. And I was like, I, I didn't know anything about what was going on. So I just thought, oh, fuck. Um, did you not get enough oxygen and are you brain damaged? But it was like, when I left the hospital, you still weren't yourself. Later that night, I texted Laura to ask about Martin. She said he'd been released from the hospital and was now asleep at home. Martin slept through the night and the entire next day. He finally woke up on Thursday morning, two full days since his overdose began. Martin says he woke up feeling normal, fine. Laura put his methadone on the nightstand for him like she always does. He took his meds and did what he always does, shower, shave, and head to Van Du. When Martin arrived, he was greeted by his buddy, a guy named Earl Grey Eyes. He must have seen me walking by the window because when I, when I walked in the door, he was up and already walking over to me to shake my hand. And this time it was like, my God, it's good to see you, Martin. I was scared I'd never see you again with the, when they took you away on, on Tuesday. And I was like, Earl, I'm sorry, bro. My friend, you're thinking of somebody else because I was, I was fine. He was like, Martin, no, you were close, so close to dead. I don't even know how you're still here. They took you away in the ambulance. I was like, Earl, are you sure? And he's like, Martin, I know who you are. It's hard to believe, but Martin had absolutely no memory of the overdose. He had no memory of being in the ambulance, no memory of the hospital. It was like his mind had just been wiped, like the overdose had never happened. When he gave me that information, I was like, oh, Earl's losing his mind, man, <laughs> right? What am I going to do about it? How can I help this guy out? But So so you leave Earl, you're like, okay, whatever, uh, sure, like kind of humoring him. like, Yeah, yeah, okay, Earl, yeah, fuck, I'm glad everything worked out for me too, brother. I'm Because, you know, I'd, I'd, very much, I'd, I'd miss seeing you, <laughs> yeah. right? Like just placate him pretty much, right? right? right. And then but I, then are you like going right away to find Laura to, to clear oh, this up? Oh, I went up, straight upstairs you... to her office. Right. I'm like, hey, uh, Laura, what's this about me in an ambulance on Tuesday? She goes, well, Martin, you overdosed. I was like, come again? And she goes, Martin, you don't, you don't remember? I, I literally, I sat down, I put my head in my, in my hands, and, and I didn't cry, but I felt like it. Right? I can remember, I can remember feeling the blood rushing right off, right away from me. Right? And thinking, what the hell could have happened there? Right? Like. Really, what could I have done to myself there? That's what we all wanted to know. What the hell happened to Martin? 
Here he was, walking around, talking, joking. He seemed like himself again. So what the fuck was that? It wasn't like any overdose I could remember, that's for sure. I'm going to tell you what happened to Martin. But first, I want to take you back in time. To Martin's childhood. Because I think that's the best way to show you what the new era has been like to live through. And what it's cost Martin and Laura. Kenny and I are Irish twins. What does Irish so twins less mean? So less than a year apart. That's what Irish twins means? Right. 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 Are you guys indigenous? Yes. Yeah. yeah. On my grandfather's side. My mother's, my mother's side. Right. Yeah. You'd never tell by the blonde hair and blue eyes. Martin and his brother Kenny are Dutch, German, and Mi'kmaq. Martin says he always knew that his mom was a residential school survivor, but he never heard all the details of the story. I, I could see the way my mom would just do anything to get away from the subject. Just anything to get away from the subject. I got so much shit battering in the inside of my mind and my dreams, and then it's just, I can't dream. If I dream, I'm, I'm a mess the next day, right? Can, I'm you, too, can you tell me the, the dream you're trying to shut off? Or if, also, if you don't want to talk about that, that's, that's cool too. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's going a little deep. I, right, will I will tell you, um, a blue, uh, um, a blue dress, the bottom of a blue dress, uh, wakes me up in dry sweats. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's, it, it's, I don't want to get into that. I can't, I can't get into that. That's, uh, that's for me and the psychiatrist. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's not do that. I grew up in a, in a way that it was, it was either, it was, it was either take control take control or be controlled and I was and I was controlled for so long after our interview Martin decided to tell me more about his childhood and fuck it might be the single most brutal story I've heard making this show. Growing up, escape was Martin's best shot at survival. So when he was 12, he decided to flee. And he knew it would be tough. Martin was just a kid. He had no money and nowhere to go. And he agonized about leaving his younger brother Kenny behind. For years, Martin protected Kenny from abuse, putting himself in the line of fire instead. But really... There was no other option. He had to get out. It definitely was my first time hitchhiking. Yeah, yeah, it was the first time I'd ever tried it. And surprisingly, it was fairly easy. I first, pretty much the first, second or third car that went by, maybe it's because I was so young or whatever, right? Giddy up, giddy up, go, as they say. I got lucky when I got there. There was a... Uh, Clifton's Cosmetics, and even in the wintertime, they had a vent that 24 hours a day did nothing but hot air. So I, I, that's where I camped. That's where I lived for three years. Martin was careful to keep the space where he slept clean. He'd even sweep the parking lot. He says that the staff at Clifton's would sometimes return the favor by leaving him some McDonald's. It was around this time that Martin first tried smoking crack. It, I, it's a, it was a little different for me. Most people get get stimulated high, like and they get up from it. Me, it kind of settles me down, brings me brings me to a, a more relaxed state, right? Which is odd, I know. One of the things Martin liked most about crack was the way it settled his mind. It got rid of his pain and negative thoughts, and it let him just get on with his day. But don't get me wrong, Martin also understood the way people saw crack smokers, so he decided to keep it a secret. I was with three women, one for seven years, one for nine, and one for 11. If you said to them, Martin, Martin smoked crack, they'd call you a liar to your face and say, never, not in a million years. Yet I used every day I was with them. 
Oh, right. I always got busted and, uh, in the end, man. You're you know, you're yeah. stealthier than me. I always yeah, got found well, out. Well, and I it led to a, fights, and uh, I smoke. I smoke a lot of pot too, right? So that kind of masked it over. And I'm not a I'm not a typical user with a rock. Like I don't need a, I don't need to get on the pipe every 15 minutes, right? I can go three or four right. hours before I right. just have a blast, just to give myself a lift. To me, there was no detrimental effect. Whatever that would, there was no negative effects to me smoking it. It was just something that was with me all my life and will stay with me for the rest of my life. The strategy was effective for Martin. He got a good paying job working at a window factory. And by his 30s, Martin had become a highly skilled oil and gas worker. He used small amounts of radiation to inspect the integrity of pipeline welds. I was real good at my job. I, I, so I had no problem getting in the camps and getting on pipelines and that. Anytime I got off the oil field, I, I, the first thing I'd do is hit the bar and buy, the first round was on me, right? I had a foosball table that was like, it, it was maple, maple wood, uh, foosball table, glass top, everything. It was like mint and uh, three grand, right? But fuck it. <laughs> I took my, I took my nephew and now I walked this guy, this kid into the, into the West Edmonton mall. I brought him into this store and it's not Toys R Us or anything like that. This was like a store that had model airplanes, remote control airplanes, like both. It had expensive shit everywhere. I said, anything in the store you want, you pick it, it's yours. I'll buy it for you. You know what he grabbed? A dollar fifty plastic fucking sword. <laughs> yeah, when I, when I had money, I, 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 I splurged on myself. Everything was going great. And then I got Crohn's disease. This diagnosis changed everything for Martin. His mom had had Crohn's too. So in some ways, he knew what to expect. Martin's stomach was now regularly in serious pain, and his work in the oil and gas industry became harder and harder to do. I would have to take a shit 13 times a day, man. And if you're in the middle of the woods, and you got to run into the woods to try to take off your coveralls, take off all your PPE, right? Drop to the fucking, drop your, drop your deuce, and then fucking get back to work again? Doesn't work. Right? I mean, I, I, qu I quit my job after shitting my, shitting my pants three times for the third time and telling my boss, hey, listen, you gotta take me home. All right? I went from being high on the horse to back down to, right, living on, now I'm on disability. First time in my life, I, I, I can't work. I decided to come to Vancouver because this is where the, the specialists were, the best specialists were for uh, the Crohn's disease. Uh, plus my only relative, my brother, Kenny, was here as well, right? He'd been here for a long time. Martin rented a place at Pender and Heatley, right on the downtown east side. Then he asked his brother if he'd like to stay there with him. That was the kind of favor that Martin said he and Kenny used to do for each other all the time. They had each other's backs. So Martin took the bedroom, and Kenny and his girlfriend took the living room. At first, everything was going good. But then Martin noticed something. Kenny used down, which Martin had never tried before. My phones are going missing and my iPods are going, everything I bought him for Christmas, I bought him for that was going missing or gone. And he kept blaming it on the down, blaming it on the down, blaming it on the down. And I'm like, bullshit, mm -hmm. smack, mm -hmm. right? Let me see if that shit's true, right? So I threw a rig into my arm and I got myself uh, wired. And when I started using injecting, it was fentanyl, right? Right. There was, it was fentanyl all the way. Those first months in Vancouver were tough for Martin. He was poorer than he'd been since he was just a kid. And he got wired to fentanyl. Unlike Rock, which was helpful and loyal, Down was a betrayer and a thief. It all felt pretty hopeless. My plans when I came here, my Crohn's was so bad and the pain and everything that I was going through at the time. I was, I was out. I was, yeah. I was, I wasn't in it, uh, in it for the long haul. I was, there's a big bridge just over the street, right? And, yeah. uh, I was, I was just, I was cutting out. You're saying you're, you're going to kill yourself. Yeah. But then Martin met Laura. Back then, Martin didn't know all that much about drug user activism, but Kenny used to like to hang out at Vandu, and sometimes Martin would tag along. 
He would do a lot of um, like volunteering at the front desk, um, any maintenance stuff that needed to be done. If there was something broken, he could fix it. He was always handy. I seen Laura at Van Du, and uh, I asked Kenny, I said, who is that? <laughs> and he said, I've never seen her with a boyfriend, Martin, right? So her name's Laura, but don't get your hopes up. I said, I don't have to get my hopes up, man. My mind's made up. (laughs) (laughs) Simple as that. Um, Bandu got a, I guess it was kind of a grant kind of thing to do a, like a bathroom study to show that and to that we needed bathrooms, more bathrooms. She was working Oppenheimer Park and, uh, Kenny brought me over and formally introduced me to her. He had short, short hair, and he was wearing glasses, and he was the most clean-cut, gorgeous, like, just those blue eyes, friendly man. Two weeks later, we held hands and been together since. So we met while I was doing a bathroom shift, (laughs) making sure that people could get in and out of the shitter at Oppenheimer Park. Martin and Laura got along right away. They both loved movies based on DC Comics. Martin told Laura his favorite character was the Joker, and she said that hers was Harley Quinn. On their first Christmas together, Martin asked Laura to split the wishbone, and it broke exactly down the middle. All their firsts were were great, really. Um, uh, I I can't even... I told her, I'm in it for the long haul. So that changed your mind about wanting to take your life as soon as i set eyes on her brother oh. yeah yeah as soon as i set eyes on her i was oh, like if, sweet, if, she, if she'll if she'll have me I'll, I'm, I'm around until just until yeah. i'm no longer around right when i when i can when i wake up in the morning gareth you don't know how good it feels to wake up in the morning maybe you do to wake up in the morning and turn to see your loved one next to you and instantly feel pride to start your day yeah. Right. Like there's there's nothing else like it. Right. And when I when I I see Laura, that instantly, instantly, I'm proud of that woman just for just for being there and getting up to go go do what she does through the day and help the people that she helps. Um, and Laura, Laura keeps me. She keeps me alive, Gareth. I can see why Laura had this kind of impact on Martin, because she had the same kind of impact on me, too. Laura beams out her drug use at 10,000 watts. In the first interview I did with her, she said, I smoke rock and I might not ever quit. That blew me away. It was inspiring that she didn't apologize for being a drug user. She just told it like it was. I learned that from her. It changed my life. All the shame just started to evaporate. And like me, Martin had hit his drug use his entire life. But Laura and other drug user activists at Van Du made Martin feel like he didn't have to be ashamed of it. And it was so fucking liberating the first time I could smoke a rock and, and people knew that I smoked it and nobody cared. I was like, fucking ass, yes. This is how my life is supposed to be. It didn't take long before Martin was spending most of his time at Van Du, attending political organizing meetings, doing frontline harm reduction work, and saving people's lives. I was the main facilitator of the alley walks. We, right. we started in behind insight in that. So what was that like? What, what was happening? Well, what we would do is I'd have two people go out. Well, actually, there were six people that went out in two-hour shifts every night, and they would just walk the alleys, hand out the harm reduction supplies, carry Narcan kits with them. If uh, someone was ODing, then right, they nine they had phones to call nine one one, and they would do it, take care of the overdose. Martin was voted onto Vandu's executive board, then elected vice president of the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society. Far from hiding his drug use. Martin was right out there, front and center, at Vandu rallies and marches. 
When I wore my top hat, you've seen my top yeah, hat. Yeah, yeah. And then I put that skeleton, the one that I have, on my shoulders, and he's carrying a sign that says, fuck fentanyl. Yeah. Uh, I get so much attention. There's not, a, <laughs> there's not a person with a camera that doesn't say, excuse me. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. Right? Yeah. I've, uh, I've helped a few people. I've saved a few lives. I've, 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 I'm doing my part. Right? Um, maybe, maybe the reason I got Crohn's and, uh, and ended up here in BC wasn't to see my brother, but was to save Susan when she OD'd, right? Maybe. You're right. I don't know. I'm here. That's all I know. It is what it is, and this is what it's going to be. So, things were going pretty good for Martin. But the drug war never stands still. Just when you've carved out some stability, some meaning, the ground starts to shift under your feet. Which brings us back to Martin's strange overdose. Back to July 2nd, 2019. Can I tell you something that I remember from that day that I want you to remember about you? Is we came to the hospital together, you and me, remember? Yes. And we searched out Martin, we ran through the hallways and we found Martin, we found him tied down to that bed with his clothes taken away and he was so scared and couldn't talk properly but Laura you were so calm you took charge of the situation you <laughs> said how much you loved him you held his hand like you're holding his hand right now and I could see in Martin in the way he was talking and moving but also even on the monitor even on that monitor that you know goes beep 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 yeah I could see those waves calming down. Like when you picked up his hand and started talking to him and he knew deep under all of those fucking layers of benzos and snow and heaviness under all that gray static, Martin could tell you were there. And, and he, he, he was co coming up to the surface to see you. And you did. That's what I remember. Thank you, Garth. What the hell could have happened? What could I have done to myself? After Martin's overdose, things were bothering Laura. What had happened? Why didn't Martin respond to Narcan? And why was he awake at the hospital, flailing around? When most overdoses are reversed, people are just kind of out and then back. Martin had been asleep for over a day, which was just one more weird thing. Why was he sleeping for so long? But then, Martin finally woke up. Well, Martin, you overdosed. You don't remember? This was the tell. Martin's memory. Suddenly, it all started to make sense. Martin must have taken a mixture of opioids and benzodiazepines, a combination we now call benzodope. Benzodiazepines are a medication often prescribed for anxiety and other conditions. They have a powerful sedative effect. Meds like Xanax, Valium, Ativan, they can knock your ass out. You know, even for a day if you take too much. Benzos also don't respond to Narcan. Not at all. So if you Narcan someone in a Benzodope OD, it'll reverse the opioid part of the overdose, but it won't touch the Benzo part. Even after naloxone, the person can be out for hours. If you take a shit ton of benzos and a shit ton of opioids, more often than not, that's really going to mess with your memory. So now we knew what happened to Martin, but we still didn't know why it happened. He didn't seek out benzos, so why did he get them? Was this just some kind of strange anomaly, or was it going to happen again? It didn't take long before we had our answer. Like the week after, I think it was a week after. Um, three three weekends in a row, twice, or two times each weekend. She, mm. she overdosed at the house with just me there. Oh, and, Martin, that's terrifying. Yeah, it is. Uh, I came across her in, maybe it was the office downstairs sitting in a chair. And I came around the corner, I looked in her face, and I was like, that doesn't look right. And uh, it's just like, oh my God, she's dead. Like I just... Yeah, her face was the wrong shape. You know, like the like all the muscle tension had gone out of the face. Like uh, so, yeah. it's like a different. And I just thought, shit, 
she's gone. I mean, I was so obviously so fucking relieved that she wasn't dead. Yeah. You know, I can't describe the, how I felt. Right, like I walked open that open the door to the room and seen her laying there, and it was like, oh fuck, oh no. But then, you know, go over and give her a little shake and get it. Uh, yeah. Right? You know, yeah. and it's like, all right, just lay down beside her then and just put my hand on her stomach and feel just it feel come up and down. Yeah. That's right. Keep me happy. Yeah. The same weekend that Laura overdosed on benzodope, 16 other people overdosed on it too. All at one OPS, all within a 24-hour period. It was clear, benzos were in the drug supply. The most recent province-wide drug testing found that there's benzos in almost 40% of the down. And that's probably a pretty significant underestimation. You couldn't miss Benzodope's impact on the downtown east side. People were passing out all the time. Sometimes that meant they were missing meetings. Other times it meant they were just lying face down on the street, totally vulnerable to theft or assault. So as you can imagine, people hated Benzodope. But actually it's a bit more complicated than that. People hated getting knocked out with no fucking warning. They hated not knowing what was in their drugs. They hated being out of control. But in the right context, when you actually know what you're getting, benzos and opioids together, that's not so bad. Heroin for me was like the thing that kept me alive. I di didn't make me want to kill myself anymore. Like I felt the same thing everybody says, you know, it's all cliche, it's all truth, oh, the warm blanket, the hug, the, all that stuff is true. But benzos together with opioids was just like, especially because I just couldn't sleep. I just was like, I could never sleep. And just like when I didn't want to feel anything, when I just wanted like zero flat line, yeah. that's when I took it. Yeah, you know? I was I was just mentioning this to someone last week. Um, I know people are trying to stay away from the benzos and don't want mm -hmm. benzos, but if I could have a benzo once a day at night to go to sleep, it, that's I, I I would love it. I would love because I, I don't no like the dreams. dreams. It's just like lying <laughs> in the bottom of the grave, Brother, in the fucking in no, the dirt. No dreams, yeah. and I can't believe we said that at the same time, <laughs> right? Like, there's that, that's what I want. In my personal experience, I love benzos. <laughs> like, I I really like benzos. They're one of my favorite drugs. Um, they melt in your mouth, they taste like candy, um, and they make me feel nice and calm. This is Trey Helton. He's been on the show before. And it's Hotel Echo Lima, Tango Echo November. I've been arrested a few times, <laughs> so I've heard that. Um, and uh, I'm the general manager at Overdose Prevention yeah. Society. Uh, welcome to Ops 390 in our location. I wanted to talk to Trey because he had a front row seat for all of this. He saw Benzodope arrive in Vancouver, up close. Trey manages two supervised consumption sites run by Vancouver's Overdose Prevention Society, or OPS. So hey, you got a, um, you know what, you got a booth right now? How busy are you? Despite the fact that nearly seven people die a day in BC from overdose, no one has ever died in an OPS site, nor at any other supervised consumption site in Vancouver or anywhere in the world. These sites are sometimes staffed with current and former drug users, and Trey is no exception. He used to take heroin, coke, meth, the works. I don't really have, like, friends. I have, like participants that go to ops that I would consider friends more than my regular friends who I hang out with. I get to know them by first name. I get to know uh, what they like, what they dislike. I get to care for these people. Trey was working at the OPS that weekend when 16 people went down in a single day. By that point, he'd already seen quite a few benzodope ODs, and he knew all about the unique challenges of reversing them. Everyone, please watch your stuff. This is when things go missing. Uh, 
they have all the typical signs of an overdose where they kind of slump over, they pass out, shallow breathing or no breathing, uh, gurgling, sounds like they're snoring. We assess the overdose, we give them oxygen, we give them naloxone, um, and uh, their vitals come back, their color comes back, but they don't wake up. And I'm going to lightly squeeze the bag valve mask every five seconds. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi. Benzodope poses serious logistical challenge for Trey and others at OPS. With a normal overdose, they get people Narcaned and feeling better pretty fast. But benzodope was causing people to languish unconscious for hours. And it wasn't like the OPS had a bunch of couches or extra space where they could stick people. And so Trey had to improvise. He remembers one day in particular when there were a lot of benzo ODs. He says that day, the weather was especially shitty. It was rainy, it was wet. Uh, when it's rainy and wet, the community's extra miserable because everyone's got street feet already and now their shoes are soaked. And BC Ambulatory Services was same old, same old 20-minute wait time. Just to even speak to someone on the phone was 20 minutes. So you got to think outside the box. So Trey grabbed an office chair, the kind with wheels. And he got one of the people who was out cold and wrangled him into the chair. And then he wheeled him up Hastings to Insight, another consumption site where Trey knew there'd be a bit more space. They weren't themselves. They were slightly more aggressive, distrustful of me, almost like they didn't recognize me. Um, they were coming in and out of consciousness. They'd open their eyes, they'd look at me, and then they'd be like, nah. Like, kind of like, I'm like, I'm here, you got to trust me. Just kind of like, keep pushing them up the hill. And then when I saw them hours later, they were back to their regular kind of happy-go-lucky selves, so. I've had conversations with people who have had Ben's overdoses where they they don't remember what happened. Um, one particular staff member, I saw them walking around in the pouring rain with their umbrella closed, asking me if I've seen their their wallet. So they've lost their wallet and they're walking around in the pouring rain with a closed umbrella, frantically looking for their wallet. I saw this person two days later and I said, did you find your wallet? They said, how'd you know my wallet got stolen? And I said, I had a full conversation with you about it two nights ago outside Pigeon Park Savings about how your wallet got stolen. And they didn't remember anything. What I've started doing is I've started videotaping my friends when they're in benzo overdoses and showing it to them so they can see that what they're doing. So they can see that this is what's happened. And um, it's just when they see it, it's it just hits home harder. Like I'm not sharing it on social media. I'm just filming this stuff just to show them so they can see what's happening. I don't see it stopping. I don't see. I don't see um, the drug use and overdoses within the downtown east side stopping uh, ever. Like I've learned to compartmentalize it, put it away, and then deal with it at a later time. Um, sadly, like that's the reality. It, it does feel like a war. How do you? How do you? When you at the later time, when you go back and open that compartment, what do you do to deal with it? Um, go to the gym. Uh, sometimes I'll sink to the bottom of Britannia pool and scream where no one can hear me. It was like being in a, being back in the embryo. I don't know. It just felt 
felt like I was in the womb again, and it felt like nothing could hurt me. I can't hear the outside, and I'm just mass floating in space. pisses me off most about this is that we could have stopped it. When the overdose crisis was officially declared as a public health emergency back in 2016, drug user activists were shouting the solution at policymakers, give us a safe supply of drugs. At that time, most of us meant give us heroin. But I don't even know if that would work anymore. Now that everyone is wired to this combination of benzos and fentanyl, it's going to be much harder to go back. And maybe, maybe there is no going back. My mind since then has, has never been the same. I used to have a mind like a whip. Garth, I will, I will get up and go to the fridge and the garbage cans beside it, right? I'll see the garbage cans full. And in my mind, I'll be like, okay, put the milk away. Got to take the garbage out. I'll put the milk away. I'll find myself sitting on the couch looking at the garbage can going, what the fuck, man? It's a full, why didn't I take that out? I told myself I was going to take that out, yeah. right? And just completely forgot yeah. that that was the next thing to do, right? And it's little things like that that I'm sure has to be from the benzos. There's been this other dynamic about listening that I've noticed is like when we're all in a meeting and say half of the people are on benzodope or have been using it a lot, the ability to listen to each other somehow seeps out of the room. Like everyone's just talking at once and then forgetting what the other person said or forgetting what they said and it just turns into this big like, circle yeah like and and that's the thing and it's and it's like it's it's almost like it's like sometimes you're you're rushing so fast to get it out because you don't know if you're going to be able to get it or you're going to forget it no laura i mean you yeah. used to be the one whose voice was loud as hell in that big room and be like okay everybody we're starting in five minutes three minutes two minutes okay we're starting an lbc yeah. call meeting you know and, that was you and getting everyone else in line yeah you know? and i want that i want i want that back i want to i want that back I can't stand the fact that I have to say, what did I just say? Right. What well, can I tell you how, how you seem? And I, I said this before, but I want to say the, the whole the whole thing. About yeah. it, right? Like, I feel like benzos, I feel like the overdose crisis and the last one, like China White, fucking my whole life has been stealing people mm -hmm. off of me, off of us, out of the world forever. Almost me. Um, definitely almost <clears throat> all of us now, right? Yeah. But I think benzos is like, benzodope is is different and somehow more insidious because it steals us slow. It steals us for th from each other three hours or three days at a time. And I feel like it's been stealing you away from me. And I said that to you and I know that's like a rough thing to hear, right? But after the end of those three hours or three days, it's still Laura. You know, you're still you. And I'm still there. I'm still at the other side of that three hours. Here but I to, don't want those three hours to not. Yeah. I don't want. There, there can. I will not let there be a point where there is not that three hours. And I am now going through, and which is putting everybody else's life um, through it. Um, a lot of memory loss, um, time loss, depression. Um, I can't. I can't fulfill my duties at work properly. Oh, Laura. Benzodope has changed all of our lives. It's killed hundreds of us. It's made our jobs harder. It's made political organizing harder. And for some people, it's opened old wounds. One day, Martin's brother Kenny took a shot of down at Vandu, and then he had a heart attack while standing at the top of a flight of stairs. A Vandu staff member saw Kenny's eyes roll to the back of his head, and before she could do anything, he fell down the stairs. When Martin got to the hospital, Kenny's heart was still beating, but he'd lost almost all brain function. Martin sat with him for days, holding Kenny's hand and sleeping with him in his hospital bed. 
on February 12, 2019, Kenny died. Kenny's death brought a lot of Martin's childhood trauma back to the surface, particularly when he was using benzodope. Laura saw this a lot. She says it was like Martin was caught in a dream, talking to people who weren't there. One day, it was really bad. Martin actually overdosed. Laura had to stay with him for hours to monitor his breathing. She remembers that Martin was mumbling, and then talking, and then crying. He was deep in despair, and Laura didn't know how to help. I wrote about it. I have it written in one of my workbooks, my bag. There's a page in there where I wrote, was writing while Martin was coming out of an overdose. You told me about this, Laura, yeah. and you guys tell me to fuck right off if I say something that's too... Um, personal like i really you, you told me i wore a diaper man come on <laughs> <laughs> well yeah <laughs> laura you were you were you were very upset about this and we were worried so i was just trying to be there to to yeah. listen and you were saying that martin you were like overdosing and you were on the edge of death but you were trying to reach across to someone who was there to make things right with them and you were saying to laura just let me just let me talk to them. Just let me go. Let me reach there. I got the impression maybe it was your brother. It would have been my brother. It would have been Kenny. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been. I saw Laura right after that happened. She came to an editorial board meeting, and she was crying. She told the group that she thought maybe Martin was giving up, that he was talking to Kenny all the time when he took benzodope. And it seemed like maybe Martin wanted to go be with him. But what did that mean? Did that mean Martin was suicidal again? Laura feared the worst. Laura says she asked Martin, Are you saying you want to go be with Kenny? But Martin couldn't remember much. And Laura says she never really understood his answer. Laura was scared. And it just kept happening. Martin would get fucked up on benzodope and start talking to Kenny. He talks to you, Martin, when you... When you someone's there it's happening and you know it you see it and you feel it I just need to talk to him I I just, there's there's, I there's stuff that I wish he knew or he does Martin he's because I didn't leave him when I left home I left the situation he was fine I stayed until he was fine and he was fine Martin I know, but do you know what he says? That I left him. That I just left him. I left him. With who used to hit him. I stayed with the, I stayed through the worst of it to make sure no one was fucking touching him. I took it. So no one else did. He, he, and I need, that's why I wanted to talk to him more. I needed him to know that I, I let I I stayed until I knew he was safe. And I have begged that he doesn't call me. I told Kenneth not that I I need him more. I need him more right now. And he knows it. I know it. I'm not going anywhere, baby girl. I am here. I'm in it for the long haul. I told you that long time ago. It's more than it's more than we Yeah. It's more than we should have. One for me, one for you, and one for later. Martin kind of bolted out of the studio. I really wanted to follow him to make sure he was okay, but Laura told me not to. She said, he just needs some space. We offered to cut all of this shit out of the episode, but Laura and Martin both told me, leave it in. They wanted people to understand the full story. More than that, 
Laura said the interview had been cathartic. For two years, she'd worried that Martin didn't want to live anymore. And this conversation was the first time that Martin had told her, no, that's not true. I'm not going anywhere, baby girl. I'm in it for the long haul. Martin and Laura are now on prescription fentanyl patches and Laura's getting prescribed benzodiazepines. This is incredibly rare. Doctors are loath to do it, and it's testament to Laura's dogged activism that she managed to get on benzo replacement at all. Most people can't. But since so many of us are now wired to benzo dope, we're gonna need a safe supply of both benzos and fentanyl. It's either that or admit the window is closing. That when it comes to safe supply, it's now or never. Crackdown is produced on Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil territories. If you like what we do, please consider donating at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. Special thanks to Sarah Blythe and Trey Helton for allowing us to record at OPS. If you'd like to provide them with a donation, you can find a link on the episode's blog post at crackdownpod.com. Thanks as well to Hugh Lampkin, for helping us remember the details of Martin's benzo overdose. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Frez, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and rest in peace, Dave Murray and Sharice Kiwaten. This episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Alex DeBoer, Alexander Kim, Jade Boyd, Lisa Hale, and me, Garth Mullins. Our academic director is Ryan McNeil. Special thanks also to Martin Stewart and Laura Shaver for reviewing audio drafts so we could get this right. Sound design by Alexander Kim. Original score was written and performed by James Ash. Academic advising and direction for this episode was provided by Professor Jade Boyd. Additional research by Alex Betzos. Thanks also to Brenda Longfellow and Darkfield Radio for additional project management and production support. Crackdown is funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Additional funding for this episode was provided by the Canadian Media Fund. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep six. Thanks, dude. And we're just going to be quiet during this time, so we don't mess up the recording. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up. Um, so maybe I'll just shut up if you just want to record. Sure. Yeah. Yeah.